Um, something else. Oh, something. Silent Adams here. <laughs> something else. Let me go again. Hello, and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage. I'm joined by Sylvie Lebeau. Sylvie Lebeau, it happened again. All the ways. Hello. Hello. Hi, listeners, viewers. We're here. We're back. We're here. We're back, baby. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> um, so we have a great interview today with Max Child, who's the CEO and co-founder of Volley. They're a company that builds voice-controlled games, entertainment experiences for Alexa and Google Assistant and smartphones and stuff like that. So great conversation about like new tech, how you scale, innovate, all that kind of stuff. So it's fun to have Max on the show. I'm excited for this interview today. Yeah. I'm excited to play some volley games with you maybe have a surprise video let's go let's play these games i can't wait to whoop your <laughs> whoop you in this <laughs> whoop your whoop you whoop your uh, whoop you <laughs> but before all that what's got us talking too loud let's see well i was just on vacation which is a delight yeah yeah went to club med no big deal <laughs> <laughs> did you know that <laughs> So no. you might remember it from growing up and seeing the ads of the people at sunset, you know, yeah. sailing their boats or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's how it is. Yeah. That's what I'm picturing. I'm picturing that commercial. Okay. So you yes. lived that commercial for- I lived that commercial for a week. Nice. Um, which was very fun. And it was very warm. We're in the Dominican Republic. So and, nice. And uh, yeah, you know, it's very French there. A lot of French food, a lot of croissant, uh, a lot of- uh, <laughs> In the DR? <laughs> All club meds are French. So basically, you go to club med, and what you see is a bunch of French people who travel <laughs> to go to different places. And when they announce something, they say it in French, then they say it in English, and they say it in Spanish. Oh, my God. <laughs> I had no idea that club med was French club med. I didn't know yeah. that. Nope, that's true. And so there's French activities. There's mini club. The kids go to mini club. Um, mini club. And uh, the adults do other things. Um, I, for example, did the trapeze. <laughs> okay. That's How'd true. How'd that work out for you? Oh, well, I, you know, I went um, four days, an hour each time. And I worked up, you know, you start with a knee hang. You get your knees on there and you're hanging and you, you know, and you're trying to get in this position so you can like, grab someone else. And then you do, uh, I did the straddle, which is like this. Other, and then I did la planche and I worked hard to get la planche, <laughs> Wait, what which is, is a la maneuver. Let me try to describe it for those, those of you listening. Basically there's like a trapeze bar hanging above a net. You know, you've got a harness on, um, and you swing on the bar and then you kind of like, you get your body into a position where you're hanging below the bar. The okay. entire body is like a plank. So you're like this. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. And you're swinging. And it's, you have to get your body in just the right position or it breaks free of the bar and it doesn't work. So it took a lot of work, but I was able to do it. That and, sounds um, impossible. Yeah, it was very fun. I'm obviously, as you know, a very competitive person. So I like tried it one time, tried a second time, couldn't do it. Third time, almost do it, but my body broke through. Like I did the thing I was not supposed to do. And I was like, that kind of hurt. Um, it's not supposed to hurt and it's also not supposed to involve strength. It's supposed to be about momentum and flexibility, they say. But I'm like, final try, fourth try. Do it on the fourth try. I'm like, oh, I did it. He's like, oh, I'm so excited. You have to come back tomorrow and we'll do the catch where you like do that and then you try to like let go and someone else grabs you. And I was like, I'm leaving. And he's like, oh, come back at nine o'clock in the morning 
so that we can do this. And I woke up the next day just sore, as <laughs> just absolutely devastatingly <laughs> sore. And I injured my shoulder doing this. You sure did. So I, now I'm just like walking around, uh, not able to do anything because of this. And but it was worth it. That's why you never do La Planche, you know? <laughs> but. There are other kinds of games for you. <laughs> There's lots of other types of games. I think we should really dig into voice controlled games and in our interview I with Max. I think that makes Child. sense. So let's let's jump into the interview with Max. Max, so great to meet you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. We're excited that you're here. Now, as you know, this show is called Talking Too Loud. And the reason it's called I Talking do. Too Loud. <laughs> is because uh, you know what you signed up for, so that's good. <laughs> I feel like I'm historically a fairly loud talker, so that sounds that's good. fits into my yes. mindset. Yes, and I have been told many times I cannot control the volume of my voice, mm. and when I get excited in particular, I just really get going. But we like to start the show by hearing, you know, what's got you talking too loud these days? What's got you excited? Mm. I mean... I think we'd be remiss if we weren't saying the obvious, like the war in Ukraine. Uh, so that would be number one, not to be a downer. Uh, but I feel like we've talked about that in many contexts. So moving on to technology and business, I guess. I'm just very excited, or maybe perhaps I'm talking too loud about uh, voice as kind of the next interface for how we use computers. Uh, I think, you know, I got my first iPhone uh, for my parents when I was like uh, 15 years old or whatever. And, you know, that touch screen was sort of one of like the magical experiences I've ever had in my life. It was the first time I felt like touch actually worked uh, on a device. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And similarly, I think that, um, you know, talking to computers, using voice as a mechanism for doing things, whether it's on an Alexa or on your phone, or, or I think eventually on your, your TV and in your car, I think is really exciting. And do you think that's a world where you just yell stuff out or talk at a normal voice volume and <laughs> you'll get answers or like, what does the world look like when um, it really is that easy? And it just a saying like, I have Siri in my house. Mm -hmm. I have the HomePods. I like the sound, like the look. Yeah. Um, but, you know, yell out to it. I would say 75% of the time it gets it right. And 25% of the time it doesn't. Yeah. Which is actually enough to be pretty annoying. So like, what yeah, will it yeah. look like when this world is working perfectly? Yeah, I think that's a great question. A, I think that the goal is, you know, 90 to 95%. So it's a little bit less frustrating. Uh, and then B, I think the existing voice assistants. So, you know, Siri, Alexa, Google, everything have really focused on like integrating this concept of, of voice control with, you know, a, a little fake AI person that lives in a cylinder. Right. And yeah. I think those could be separate basically. <laughs> like, I think you could be looking at your TV and just say like, you know, Netflix, like, the power of the dog and play or whatever, you know, just like, I think you can use voice essentially to just sort of like push buttons on a screen from a distance rather than it having to be some like fake conversation with, with a person uh, that doesn't actually exist. Right. And so I'm like pretty long that we're going to be able to control anything with a screen with our voices um, in a very just sort of straightforward, intuitive way by saying the thing on the screen that you want to happen um, without it necessarily being some AI conversation that doesn't work a lot of the time. Do you think that that also gets us to a world where based on the conversations we're having, like we just start to get like inputs or insights from things? Yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, I mean, once I think you have like AR glasses or whatever, I think there's definitely a world in which you're getting insights from what you're seeing around you and then able to address them via voice. But I think something that's particularly interesting is like, you know, we're on a Zoom call right now and you start to be able to use voice uh, 
to do things on Zoom and you know control basically the things that are happening on the video. So you and I could say like, hey, like turn me green, you know, make my background a, a, a fantasy mountain, like make a unicorn jump across the screen. And I think that using voice to control video uh, is pretty interesting as sort of a future way we use our computers. So we, we jumped in really quick because I like to go deep into the future. But for people who don't know, what is Volley? How did you get started? And what do you help people do? Yeah. So I, I run a company that makes voice control games. So, you know, for listeners that maybe don't know what that means, uh, it means, you know, games where you're playing and the interface is your voice. So we have a very popular uh, name that tune music trivia game, for example, called Song Quiz. That you can play on Alexa and Google Home. If you have one of those devices. Um, we also have a number of sort of game show type experiences. So we actually control like the price is right, uh, jeopardy millionaire, uh, wheel of fortune, uh, which you can play on any of these voice control devices. And in general, our goal is just to sort of make like family game night fun and, and make it, you know, intuitive and voice controlled and playable for kids who are four years old and, you know, for their grandparents who are, who are you know, in their nineties, let's say, um, all together at the same time. So, and you've yeah. been around for six years. Yeah, so? um, I guess, yeah, coming five to six, something like that. Um, in the early days, we were making uh, mobile apps and uh, actually chat-based games. So like okay. we built a Facebook Messenger, a uh, little chat-based trivia and virtual pet games. And none of those were that successful, but uh, we figured out some things that eventually translated to, to voice control. And then now you have Prices Right, Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. How'd you get those deals? How'd you do that? <laughs> It was really hard. Uh, <laughs> uh, relentless outreach to the folks who control those kinds of, you know, IPs, I guess you would call them, right? And then, uh, you know, I do think we proved ourselves as, um, you know, maybe the best or, you know, one of the best uh, game developers on these voice platforms. And the folks who control those IPs, I think we're excited to build even better and cooler experiences. And so we just sort of over time convinced them that we would be the, the right partner to do that. So this is interesting. I mean, so you've been around six years. You started with the chat, like mm-hmm. Facebook Messenger games and stuff. Mm-hmm. You find your way to voice. How far into the journey was that? Um, it was pretty early. I mean, it was, you know, a year or two in from the messaging okay. period. Um, you know, I think we got, you know, a few hundred users daily on our Facebook things. And that was great because it was better than zero. But it wasn't like, you know, burning down the yeah. world. Uh, and yeah, yeah. retention wasn't that good. And so... You know, we just sort of started playing around on weekends with other ideas we thought were cool. And and Alexa came along, I, you know, uh, it was just one of those things where I was like, oh, wow, this actually works and you can build apps for this. Why don't we play around and see if some of our ideas will work? Yeah. So we jumped on that in like, you know, mid uh, 2017, something like that, and have basically okay. been on the voice train since then. So mid 2017. And then when from then did you actually like close that deal? Was that one deal where <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I'm digging deep on this. And oh, I, yeah. feel free to stop me if we can't talk no, about it. But it's no I mean, I feel like the reason I'm asking is so many people mm-hmm. have ideas like yours, which is like, oh, if I had this thing, justify and it's a game show thing, if I could get the best game shows in the world, then I would have a real business and then they never do it. They never figure it out. So it's like a very interesting that yeah. you actually did it. It's awesome. But how you got there and the speed is like, seems like really fast. Well, yeah. So for starters, yeah, we didn't have any of these sort of IP based deals until maybe like a year and change ago. So we spent, you know, three, three plus years working on our own products uh, without the sort of game shows. And yeah, I mean, I just, I think we, honed the craft of building great voice games in that period, including, you know, not just getting users 
um, but also, you know, engaging them, making things more fun and monetizing and, you know, building a business around our sort of first party original ideas. So, um, you know, I mentioned some of what we have, but we also have storytelling apps that are pretty successful, kind of like choose your own adventure, like interactive audiobook type stories. Um, those work pretty well. Song quiz and other sort of trivia games that were not branded uh, worked very well. And I think we just got better at building voice games and eventually were able to convince the IP holders that why not try it out and see if it made sense to work with us. So there's no secret. It's just hard work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the secret is like, have proof that you are the right person to work with, right? I don't know. Uh, it was not the it was not the genesis of our business to try to you know sign up a bunch of IP, I guess. But like, yeah, that wasn't why you started. You started. It sounds like you pivoted also because you saw an opportunity and mm -hmm. you started playing around. Mm -hmm. There was something there, and then you proved it out with your own apps, and then to the degree where you were able to actually have that conversation seriously. And, you know, I mean, these are iconic brands. That's why, I mean, it's pretty, yeah. it, to think about them taking a risk with anybody is shocking, right? Like when, when they're talking about who's going to be the new Jeopardy host, it is a big process. It's not, it's not an easy, fast thing. Really, it's a really very big. rigorous, Last, really time. big yeah, process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it just seems like it's, it's very interesting to see like how you actually made that happen because for so many people who are trying to scale and trying to figure out, you know, how to get their customers or how to get that partnership, like. It can seem easy and you're making it seem easy, but I think you deserve more credit that this is actually like you proved that you built apps that were actually valuable. Yeah. You knew how to do it before the deal happened. That was definitely the hard part. Yeah. I think uh, in terms of the sort of, you know, cart before the horse uh, ordering of things, like we had a number of pretty successful games and we had gotten better and better over time at, you know, making them fun and engaging and, and you know, building a business around them. And that's a big reason why we were able to convince these IP holders to work with us. So the hard part is like, get good at the building products first, and then maybe you'll be able to convince brands to work with you. Awesome. And you started this with a friend from college, right? Yeah. James, my co-founder, uh, and he, he is our CTO. And we've now been friends for like 14 or 15 years. So it's been quite a, uh, quite a long experience. <laughs> That's awesome. And very similar. My co-founder is one of my best friends from Brown and nice. we've been friends for uh, 19 years yeah, at this there point. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Where did you meet James? Uh, I met James. So yeah, I went to Harvard undergrad. So, uh, we were roommates, um, for a couple of years there. Uh, and then from the beginning freshman year or what's the deal? We, we were not <laughs> freshman year roommates. Uh, he was a friend of one of my freshman year roommates. And so okay. it was kind of the overlapping friend groups and then sophomore year and beyond all of our groups sort of merged and lived together from then on. So. Wow, this is eerie. This is almost exactly the same. Brent and I lived in the same hall, but from sophomore year on, like, yeah. we, <laughs> they're in the same suite. And it, that's funny. Um, and how has it been? How has the friendship, you know, grown? Or I'm going to guess it has not been destroyed. But like, <laughs> how, how, how has the friendship been through building a business? Um, I mean, I think it's gone really well. I mean, I think, you know, we went through a few years, as I mentioned, of not really being very successful and sort of getting better at engineering, product design, all that good stuff. And I think that that period for people trying to start a company where you're not succeeding and there's no end in sight is really difficult. And I think breaks up a lot of founder relationships, especially sort of, you know, shotgun weddings or whatever, that kind of thing. Um, and I think that because James and I are such good friends and sort of had this foundation of of you know trusting each other and being able to sort of talk honestly and you know be open about what was working and what wasn't was really important for getting through that part and then i think you know we were just also both really excited about building creative products and and having fun doing our jobs i mean we quit 
these like boring corporate jobs in New York to try to start a company together. And so I think we just sort of feed off each other in terms of what we get excited about as well, which uh, helps a lot. Again, extremely similar. It's so funny. <laughs> you were in New York when you started, but where are you now? Uh, yeah. So we, I mean, we quit our jobs in New York and moved to the West Coast basically uh, almost like 10 years ago now. So I'm in San Francisco. Um, our company's kind of headquartered in San Francisco. Um, have a few folks remote right now, but we're you know in the office a couple of days a week now. And it's, it's been nice the last couple of weeks uh, being back. So you're basically, you're back in the office. How many people are on the team? Um, there's like 50 teammates right now. And I'd say 35, 40 are in the Bay Area. Um, and we come in you know, two to four days a week based on meeting schedules, that kind of thing. And how's it going to be back? It's great. I mean, I don't know what your experience is like, but it honestly just feels like someone had like a screen door between you, which was Zoom basically. And you can have a conversation all of a sudden without like the screen door uh, sometimes. Not that, again, I think people should be in five days a week. I think that's also a bad idea, but I think that you can just have such high bandwidth conversations in person, particularly on like the creative side uh, that I think is just really, really difficult on, on video chat right now. That's cool. Yeah, we are about 180 people now. That's and we were, yeah, yeah pre-COVID, we were about 100. Mm. Um, and we were 90% in person and now we're, or 90% Boston area, I should say. Now we're about 50%. Yeah. And so what we're going to do is, you know, if you want to come in, you can come in as much as you want. We're going to do like, start doing on sites. So we're doing one in a couple weeks, mm. which can be fun that the whole company is invited to. Yeah. Um, and it'll be like insanely intense in-person week. <laughs> um, my assumption is going to be extremely fun and extremely tiring. That's what I am like looking forward to. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. We're. For the folks who are out of town, you know, 10, 15 people, we're, we're doing a yeah full team in-person week, uh, maybe like Sweet. three or four times a year. So similar concepts. Um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. As someone who was engineering for a few years, I do believe in like deep work. And I think work from home, you know, a, a few days a week where you can just have eight hours to, you know, code or, or work on design or do data analysis, I, I think totally makes sense. But I also think there's value in, you know, a couple of days a week uh, in person, just sort of a little more creative and, and a lot easier to also just do, uh, you know, career coaching or one-on-ones or just chatting with people about, you know, what they're looking for in, in their job, or if they want to work on something different, you know, more kind of authentic, uh, real conversations, I think is, is easier in person too. Yeah. I think it's easier for that stuff to happen organically. You have to like build the systems that formally have those conversations and stuff yeah. when you're not just like running into someone and making friends. Yeah. Also, which I think is an important part of work. <laughs> totally. Um, so you're about 50 people. What, what has scaling been like for you all has been just easy breezy. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to judge these kind of things, right? You're like, well, I don't know. I don't have any like counter examples. This is my first uh, company really. So, um, I mean, it's been fine. I, I mean, so we were at about 10 or 11 people before COVID happened and then have scaled to 50 since, you know, so the last two years. Um, so it's been pretty fast. Um, that's fast. That's that's a high, high percentage to add yeah, remotely. Exactly. Yeah. So all all on Zoom, all remotely. I mean, it's it's gone pretty well, I think. You know, you can always sort of tell like where you're severely under-resourced or there's some, uh, you know, system or, or process or plan in place that you didn't think you needed and maybe you need now. You know, I think the key is just everyone having kind of a positive attitude and, and being nice and generous to each other and then hopefully kind of instilling the, you know, quote unquote, 
corporate processes that you need to, to run a slightly larger company, you know, at the right time, not too early, not too late. Uh, so it's, it's been all right so far, no apocalyptic issues, but you know, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Do you have enough, do you have enough of your systems written down when we were at that stage? I remember, um, I kept having this experience, which has turned out to be consistent, which is like, oh, wait, like people don't really know what our values mean. We need to have a formal reviews process. We kept having to take things that were organic and make them formal Mm -hmm. because like, you know, the amount of time that anyone spends, especially with like early people is like reduced to such small amounts. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's this process of like, at least for me, it was, oh my God, no one knows what's going on. Oh, wait, we have to define a thing that we've never defined before. Oh, that seems clear and easy. And then we hit like, you know, another another 15 people and suddenly a system would break that I wasn't expecting. Are you going through any of that? Yeah. I mean, I think similarly, we're having to write down a lot of things. So, I mean, reviews process just just went through and spent many months sort of documenting and trying to figure that out. I think the pandemic was pretty good for forcing things into text to some degree. So that would be one upside, right? Like, I think that Certainly, we make a lot of Notion docs uh, in the last two years that we probably wouldn't have made other than totally. that we sort of had to. Yeah. People had to have somewhere to look at the the, the concept that we had in mind, right? Um, so definitely just writing a lot more things down has been one upside of having some work from home, some folks remote, you know, the pandemic in general. But I'm sure we can do more. And I think we're you know in the process of doing a lot of the documentation that you're describing. What advice would you give somebody who's 10 people now and things are starting to scale? Mm, interesting. That's a good question. <laughs> uh, I always find advice troublesome because I think it really like the timing of the advice matters, but you got the timing very specific here. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's like so many little things, but I'm trying to like distill this into the one thing I think is actually the most valuable. Oh, no, you can go into the, yeah. no, you don't need to get fluffy here. This is a podcast. Mm. Let it come out. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think I, obviously, you know, if you're at 10 and you're trying to scale a lot, right, you're going to spend a lot of time recruiting and sort of, you know, um, trying to bring in new folks and then sort of structure the organization around where those new folks fit in. And so I think my increasing philosophy on recruiting is like, uh, you know, I'm sure you've seen the movie or read the book Moneyball, right? I think that there's like a lot of Moneyball to be played on recruiting that most people don't play. I think, especially in the Bay Area, not that you pay people less, but that you go looking for folks who are excited about what you're working on and may not come from like, you know, the sort of Amazon, Google, Facebook group. Um, and similarly, there's a lot of recruiters that companies out here use that are just sort of every series A through series C company uses the exact same recruiters and spams the exact same engineers with the exact same LinkedIn messages, and then ends up having to compete on salaries with, you know, Facebook, who's willing to, you know, back up a Brinks truck, uh, just to like, yeah. you know, <laughs> keep, keep an, an engineer for an extra year or two or something. Right. Yeah. And so I think like, it's odd to me how like symmetrically people compete in recruiting with the people who can obviously beat them, if that makes sense. And so I think there's money ball in terms of uh, looking for folks who are, you know, maybe earlier in their career, working at a company that's not as much of a name brand, um, you know, just finding people where they're playing around online with whatever they're doing. So, you know, with designers, you know, spending time on Dribble or whatever, you know, with engineers spending time on, you know, hacker news or various sort of open source projects, like so on and so forth. I just think there's a lot of um, great people out there who are excited to work on new and fun things who are not on the sort of call sheet of the big recruiters, if that makes sense. That does make sense. (laughs) And it resonates because I think also, 
you're making the point. It could be easy to be defeatist and think like, oh, I can never pay people as much as like the Brinks truck, right? I don't have the Brinks truck. Yeah. Um, but it's easy to not recognize like that there's so much more than just like how much you're paying someone, but like actually where does it fit into their career? How does the purpose line up? What are the people that they're going to be working with? Like, what are the values that you make decisions with? All that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, there's a really, you know who Peter Chernin is? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Have you heard that interview with him on um, Invest Like the Best? I don't podcast? think I have, no. It's a really good one. And for people who don't know, Peter Chernin was like really senior at Fox for a long time. And um, he has this, this thing he talks about like world-class talent. Mm. And he basically says, like, it's impossible to hire world-class talent. <laughs> and the reason is that, like, if someone's truly world-class, the organization figures it out and they, like, basically back the Brinks truck up, like, mm -hmm. you can't pull them out. Mm -hmm. And then if someone's world-class and they know it, they're going to do their own thing. Yeah. So the way to get world-class talent is you have to grow it. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I also think, like, becoming world-class... I think we have a lot of folks who are, you know, either world-class or on the way to being world-class at what we do. And I think the reason is like every company is sort of a Venn diagram of skills, right? Like there's, you know, three or four really key things that you're sort of looking for people who are at like the intersection of those three or four things. Right. And I think that like for, you know, an engineer, it's not just sort of like classic engineering skills, but then it's also like, you know, people management and hiring. It's also for us specifically understanding voice control and how that whole machine works. And then, you know, finally architecting large scale systems or something, and then, you know, product design. And if you like layer those four or five things, you know, if you're top 10% in the world at like four or five things that actually all matter for this role, like you are literally world-class, right? There's nobody else who has all four or five of those things, even if they're better than you at one of those things or two of those things. Right. So I think that like, the fantasy that you're ever going to pull like quote unquote world-class talent to your point is also, you know, there's competitive reasons for it, but I also just think that you have to grow people because most startups that are successful are like sufficiently differentiated that there is nobody who is like world-class at what you're doing. <laughs> and, you know, they, they, at least our company, like there's nobody else making good voice games really. So there's like no world-class talent. There are world-class designers and engineers who could figure it out, but they're not there yet. And so, um, you know, you have to figure out how to build uh, the company into that. Yeah. I mean, I love we're talking about this because I feel like this is, this is the other side of like, it's hard to recruit, but you can actually build world-class teams and you can build world-class talent. Mm -hmm. And to your exact point, like you get the right Venn diagram. And you give people the right opportunity and it can actually happen. And that's what powers all these companies that take off, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but we don't always talk about this. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the executive teams of really, really big companies who have grown in the last 10 or 15 years, like the first 10 people there were not like conventional quote unquote world-class talent. Even the first like hundred people were not like conventional yeah. world-class talent. They're often like the friends of the people who joined early or like some random person that they met online or in person that they were like, Hey, do you want to work on this? And that person was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And then in retrospect, we're like, Oh my God, these people were all super geniuses. And it's like, well, there might be like an order of things. Like maybe they were great and they had potential, but like they all worked together to become, you know, world-class, right? They became greater. Yeah, yeah. They worked together on that thing. They did something they couldn't have done otherwise. It's always like for us, we always try to look for people who, are stretching in some way, right? Because if you're stretching in your role, mm -hmm. that is where you end up changing the rate of growth. And that's where you end up taking on more. And that's where you end up like going to the next level. But it's funny because like, that's actually, if you were just go with like a traditional recruiter and they don't give them enough information, they'll just go find you the most senior person, bring them in, which doesn't mean that they're going to be successful at all. 
Um, so it's just interesting to think about like getting that balance right and fitting it to where the company's at. Mm-hmm. All right, let's pivot to um, you have all these people. <laughs> uh, how do you actually build creative games? Like obviously you're you're being really creative when you're making games, um, but what goes into that? What makes it great? Mm, I don't know. That's an interesting question. Uh, okay, I guess there's a lot of different answers, but I'll sort of touch on a few points and we'll see if it's like helpful. Um, <laughs> I think there's like kind of two things that really matter, right? One is in the sort of, you know, early period where, you know, you're searching out new ideas, right? Um, so not just early in the company, but early in the experience of deciding you're going to make a new, a new concept or a new feature or something. And then I think you have to like be in that sort of like very open-minded, like casting a wide net mode. And literally, I mean, in the early days, uh, James and I had, um, you know, notes and documents and post-its and everything with, you know, hundreds of hundreds of concepts, right. For what would make a cool voice game. Um, and, uh, there were a million, well, I'm sure terrible ideas, but eventually we started homing in on a few that we thought were cool. And, uh, you know, one of the ones that we thought was really cool was like, oh, a spelling bee game for kids, right. Where they spell against each other. Right. So we built the spelling bee game. And it turned out to be terrible, actually, uh, <laughs> because Alexa cannot recognize letters. So like B, C, D, and E are just, does not work at all. Like you literally cannot it's get it right. It's such a unique uh, problem that, yeah, it wouldn't have occurred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. B, C, D, E, D, B, G, T, like just no chance. So that was a terrible game. Um, but we moved on very quickly. We're like, okay, that recognition doesn't work. Like, let's make our next thing where we solve the recognition problem. And so we were like, we're going to make a game where the only interface is yes and no. So we built choose your own adventure, like, you know, fantasy story called Yes, Sire, where you're like a medieval knight making decisions and you just make only make decisions with yes and no. And like that actually worked really well. That was probably like our first big hit on Alexa. (laughs) Um, This like, you know, knight management game where yes and no is the only interface. And one of the reasons that really succeeded was not just the constraint around the recognition, but also you know, James is a really good writer and just wrote a bunch of the stories in that app and, and made it really fun and entertaining. And sort of violent and a little edgy. Uh, and so the writing itself was such a powerful element of building this sort of great voice gaming experience. Um, and we've gone through that process a lot of times where we've had a bunch of ideas, we've narrowed it down to a few, we've picked one, we've been wrong, it's been a bad idea. And then we've been able to like discard it and learn from it and then take like the core learning, which was like, how do we you know fix the recognition and not necessarily like remake spelling bee, but you know try to make it better with, with new recognition. So I think it's like that openness and being willing to, to walk away from things. Um, but like taking the key learning from the original experience. And then I guess the second part is like, how do you like iterate and improve on those things? Because I think there's sort of like little wins and like big wins. Right. And I think as I'm sure you've experienced, like what happens is you get caught in a lot of like little wins because like they're obvious and straightforward and you know what to do, but it's like hard to make big changes to your most popular games. Um, and so what we do to sort of try to get the team in a mindset of like making big steps forward every once in a while is we actually do a few hackathons a year for the company um, where we set aside like three days and we let people pick whatever teams they want. And we say like, work on anything. It can have anything to do like with anything you want. It doesn't have to be voice games, even like any creative concepts, any idea. It doesn't have to be uh, an app. Even, you know, we've had people make marketing videos or we've had people make like, um, you know, crazy business cases for something new we should be working on or, you know, something else. Um, and I would say like half of our good game ideas have come out of hackathons probably like, 
in the history of the company. So that's like pretty high hit rate. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, like, yeah, because like literally in 48 hours, people have built things that were all sitting there because we have everyone present to everyone at the end. And we're like, oh my God, like we have to do that. <laughs> oh yeah. It's so eerie to have this conversation because it's so many similarities, but yeah. like, I mean, obviously we're a B2B video marketing platform, mm -hmm. but we've made all of the biggest, newest, craziest stuff for the most part that we've ever done has come out of hackathons Yeah, where it's like you get going and it's exactly as you said, it's very hard to do the big different thing. And then someone does it in two days. And you're like, what the hell? How did you do that in two days? Why would we been sitting on this? Yeah. And then there's also something I feel like I've learned, which is like, you can write something down and say you should do it. And for some people, that's enough. But some people have to see it. I mean, I feel like I have to see it often, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It makes a huge yeah. difference. It's just like, oh, wow. I've gone from imagining to seeing. And yes, it's a prototype. And yes, it can't launch. And yes, there's a million problems with it. And yes, it's going to break the second after the hackathon's done. But like now we have conviction that we should do it. Yeah. And it's such a simple thing. I mean, it's amazing. But to your point, like I'm always blown away multiple times per Agathon, like that somebody did something in 48 hours or that some team did something in 48 hours. And it's just like, whoa, we are sitting on just like so much creativity. And I, I do think yeah. if we did hackathons like every four weeks, that would run out. So I think we got to like, you know, get the knob right where people have like- It is that instinct after, yeah. right after you're like, should I be doing this every week? <laughs> right, exactly, should this be right. the you're only like, way we work? Should we be working yeah. on our existing yeah. products or should we <laughs> what just are be we doing, doing hackathons yeah. all the yeah. time? I don't know. Yeah. Like I think you had the dial right, but I don't know. We'll have to yeah, see. That's <laughs> Yeah. The last hackathon we did, which was probably- four months ago or something, mm -hmm. um, we had a theme. We sometimes we'll do themes and we did a theme around connectedness mm -hmm. because in our engagement surveys, like being fully remote, a lot of the numbers are good, but the number that was the worst was how connected do you feel to your team? And so mm -hmm. people came up with all these ideas. And one of the things was this like live radio, W-I-S-T-F-M, like Wistia FM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically like people can broadcast music and there's like stingers and they can like talk over at this interface. Mm -hmm. um, and it started with like once or twice a week, people would get on there and just play music. Then everyone would go in the same Slack room when this is happening. Mm -hmm. And it's turned into this thing, which is like now... You, you can sit there and be doing work and like listening to music and like chatting with people in between like your emails or whatever the other thing is you're doing. You feel like this connected, it like actually happens. Um, and we started doing like weekly announcements that mm. you can listen to. Like if you're at a school or something, yeah. it's like 9.30 a.m. on Tuesday mornings, the Wistia weekly announcement comes out on Wistia FM. And it's just crazy because it came out of like exactly as you're saying, like you just give people the freedom in a hackathon, this, things like this pop up. I feel like I want to try this product. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> you, you need to license internal radio stations to companies. Like, I mean, maybe we do. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that seems like a pretty cool idea. I would definitely try it. So, okay. We'll get that in the works. Okay. Um, All right. A couple other things I want to dig in on what you said there around being creative. One is like, so the spelling bee thing was a failure. Mm -hmm. How do you move through that? Mm. Like, what did that feel like to move through? How did you navigate through that and not just get so down on yourself? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's definitely just like a mindset thing of like not being embarrassed of failure. Right. Um, Jeff Bezos famously is like obsessed with failure and, you know, thinks that Amazon should be failing at larger and larger scale over time as they get to be a bigger company. I think that's really hard to instill in folks um, just because I think it is embarrassing to fail at large scale. And I think that it's really, really hard to sort of get over that, even if you try to make it a part of the culture. I don't know. 
I think there's an element of just like finding resilient people who are okay failing and going into new projects saying, Hey, this might fail. And like, we're okay with that. And that's not going to impact your career. Um, I also think from an org design perspective, I think we're a very functional organization. So we're okay to move people around if a project isn't working and we'll have them move on to something else. And so it's not like failure. It does actually impact their, their performance of their career, which I think is important. Um, I also think secrecy can be somewhat helpful. I think that's like an Apple mindset that like you can have failed projects, but you keep them secret. So it's not embarrassing when they fail, right? I think we're pretty transparent internally, but I do think with new, you know, R&D experimental projects or, or new new game ideas, I think we try not to like oversell them uh, internally or keep them a little bit secret because we want people to be able to make changes and do new things without sort of being scared. Um, but I'm not sure any of those is like the answer. Was that an explicit like approach to that? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess just I personally, I don't know. I've always been a big Apple fan. I'm sort of a student of the Apple culture as far as you can get anything out of them, which not much since they're very secretive. But <laughs> yeah. I think that like, uh, <laughs> but I think if you talk to anyone at Apple, they're like, well, we have a million failures a year, but like nobody even knows what anyone else is working on. <laughs> and I don't think we're like at that point of like, you know, CIA level secrecy. But um, I do think especially as you become a very large organization with thousands and thousands of people, I, I think over time, it is probably increasingly valuable to sort of wall off new ideas and projects so that it's not embarrassing if they fail. And so I don't know. None of those are like an easy, straight answer, but those are sort of my like basic principles in terms of how to embrace failure a little bit. Well, I think there isn't an easy answer. That's why I asked the question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we all try to deal with it in different ways. And I think that's the secrecy one is interesting because like you can create such a distraction mm -hmm. and, and the pain of the distraction can be very large sure. um, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, Snapchat is also famously pretty secretive, like um, in terms of working on new projects. And so, I mean, if you look at like the two companies in tech that are the most obsessed with secrecy, it's probably Apple and Snapchat. And like, they're both pretty innovative. So maybe there's a correlation, maybe there isn't, but it's interesting. Whereas like you famously open companies, you know, Facebook and Google, and I guess, I guess I would say they're open to failure a lot, but the products seem pretty garbage a lot of the time. So hot takes. <laughs> well, the new ones, I mean, come on, like, I don't know if, if yeah. you want a hot take. All right. Like what's the last new Google product that's been good? Like maps, <laughs> Gmail. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been a good decade. Yeah. <laughs> it's been um, a good decade. Yeah. 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 That wasn't an acquisition. Right. No, I know it, it is interesting. I mean, I, especially as a lot of these companies get bigger, most of them lose their ability to innovate at all. Right. Um, right. Like they have to acquire because they can't, they somehow can't get through what we're talking about. Yeah. Like this period of like testing and figuring out what's actually working and then actually scaling it without it being a disastrous failure right. or, you know, people it's, feel like it's a waste of time or whatever. That's kind of terrifying though, isn't it? I mean, like, it's really, really hard to ship new innovative products as a large company. And I certainly have not figured it out, but I think that it's interesting to think about what makes you know Apple successful at that, for example. Yeah. I think a lot about like, um, and something you said earlier reminded me of this, like when you're looking at your own projects and trying to evaluate, is it working or not? I feel like it's so easy to think about someone else's company and see the obvious thing to try or the obvious thing to do. And then like with yourself, it's so hard to like actually pull yourself out enough do you see that same thing? Yeah. I mean, we're pretty small. And I think the hackathons and sort of, you know, to that discussion, I think people are very clear about within the company, at least what they think we should be working on. Um, I don't know. I mean, our business is pretty different than yours. So I, I think that 
there aren't that many other companies in our space where I'm like, oh, I obviously would do this different thing that they're doing. I guess to me, what's more interesting is the fact that like within the company, I think it's often very obvious to people who work at the companies, the large companies, whether it's, you know, the Googles or the Facebook, like that, you know, this project could have worked if this had happened, but like management killed it or legal killed it, or we just couldn't get enough resources behind it, or just like the CEO changed and then no one cared about it anymore. And like, the percentage of like interesting projects that are killed by that sort of stuff is just incredible. And so um, that to me is, I feel like clearer when I speak to folks at large companies is that they have a lot of like pretty cool, interesting ideas that like may or may not work, but at least have an interesting chance of working. And then there's just so many stops them. Yeah. There's so many veto players, right. Or or just turnover. All right. Well, look, you're in control. Um, I don't know if that's true, but <laughs> you're well. You're in control of your own business. Uh, in theory, uh, in what's theory. next for you? What are you? What are you all going to do that no one's going to stop you from doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mentioned at the top of this discussion that I just am really big on voice-controlled screen experiences. You know, TVs being the obvious thing. I think we're really excited about. Um, you know, people play a lot of games on TVs, obviously, right? Um, but they're almost all using controllers that are fairly complex and that maybe there's a big learning curve in every new game you play. You know, a lot of folks just don't have that many fine motor skills. There's a lot of setup process. You have to wait 20 minutes for PlayStation to download their newest update or whatever. Whereas I think like the idea of playing games on TVs where the interface is really easy and intuitive and and anyone can pick it up right away, you know, i.e. in my case, voice, I think is really, really interesting, especially as an avenue for you know, sort of more casual, like family game night, multiplayer games. I think just like people sitting around the TV, playing Jeopardy, playing Price is Right, you know, playing song quiz, whatever, and just like shouting at the TV or, or shouting into the remote control. And just, I, I think it could be, you know, the next Nintendo Wii or something where it was like the only time ever that people could play games because the controller was so intuitive that anyone could do it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just really a big believer in voice control games on the TV. And I think you know, also potentially, you know, mobile in the car, as I discussed, but the TV is a big focus for us right now. So are you formally announcing that there will be a way to play Jeopardy along with the show? Uh, like Interesting. With along with the show, I definitely cannot say anything to that effect. Uh, but first of all, I would say you can play Jeopardy on a Fire TV device um, because it does work via Alexa. So there is sort of a already exists. Um, mm. And then, yeah, in general, I think just we're going to invest in making voice games awesome on TVs. And I think there's a lot of potential there. Awesome. Max, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. Where could people learn more? Where can they learn more about you? Where can they learn more about Volley? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, so our website is, uh, unfortunately, we don't have the money to have volley.com yet. Uh, so we have <laughs> volleythat.com. So you know, volley like a tennis shot and then that.com. Uh, and you can see all of our games there. Or you know, if you have an Alexa or Google device, um, you know, if you say, hey, you know, play song quiz, play Jeopardy, um, or just play a game, you'll probably end up uh, at one of our games. So that's the easiest thing to do. We're going to do this, Savage. Awesome. We're going to play yeah, song quiz. we are going to do it. Play a song quiz. Give me feedback. I'm going to destroy will. him. Okay. <laughs> just wait. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Max. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. You know I got excited when we started talking about hackathons. That was clear. It was very clear. I mean, between the hackathons and the co-founding with like a friend that you met in college, that was eerie. Yeah. Some symmetry there. There were some symmetries. Yes. Um, It feels good when you hear how someone else 
Like when he said, you know, I wonder my, to myself, should I do this every four weeks? Is that what we should do? Like after every hackathon, after we have it, someone says, should we just, should this bitch just be what we do? Like, is this just, what? and of course, if that's all you did, then you'd be exactly back to wherever you are, right? Like, it's just like, well, actually let's structure our plan. You just make, you, it has to be a break, but my gosh, the value of doing that is so huge. Um, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah. I mean, it seems motivating for the team as well. Like it's, it's like a way to get everybody's yeah. creative juices flowing in a way that like maybe, you know, they're working on the same product or in the same kind of field for weeks, months. Totally. Yeah. It also, it makes connections across the team where people who, you know, they run into each other, they share like, oh, I have this idea. I want to work on this thing. And someone else arrived at the same idea independently. And um, yeah, I think if you, if you're running a company and you're not doing hackathons, like you gotta, what are you, you even doing? To, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yes. What are you even doing? You have to make the space for it. It's unbelievable the impact that can come from it. Um, there's been so many things that have happened for us. Obviously, as Max was saying, like all of the new exciting stuff that Volley has done is from hackathons. It's funny how just like creating the space without an expectation, without having a specific plan can be so impactful. Absolutely. Something else that I am super pumped about is, you know, when Max was describing voice games for TV, I do not have fine motor skills, okay? Me and hand controls, no, no, no. Don't go together. So I'm ready to just shout, just shout at the TV and win some games. I assume that you already do. My <laughs> assumption when he said that was Sylvie, when she watches things, she already yells at the TV. Like, if you watch Jeopardy, I guarantee you, with no one else in the room, you're like, that's yeah. Water and like now the TV will be like 200 points. <laughs> oh my god, you do that, that was right? very inaccurate. No, I do. Um, yeah, when I play, when I play, see, I even said when I play Jeopardy, like I, I do yeah. the whole mm -hmm. like scoring recording with my dad. We're competitive too, but I mean, just the idea that like you can manipulate a game with your voice, I think, is such an interesting idea. Get ready, people, it's coming. It's going to happen. It's coming. Or it's like here. Like the great reindeer uprising. The great, <laughs> not sure how we got to the great reindeer uprising. You know what that means. So I think it means it's time to wrap up. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> thanks for sticking with us today. Hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll have a new episode in two weeks per usual. You will see some behind the scenes footage if you look for it of Sylvie and I playing some of these games. So please come check that out. Um, subscribe if you're listening and you're not a subscriber what are you doing what are you Come doing on. just subscribe rate and review the show especially if it's five stars right <laughs> right so we love those five star ratings you're so punchy but yes we love five stars we love five we stars. love them and of course if you have feedback or voice memos or trinkets or um, referral codes you want to send us you can send those to us at ttlpod at wissu.com and that is a wrap Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia, hosted by Chris Savage, produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.